Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal, and I'm joined today by Oliver Traldi, a PhD student in philosophy at Notre Dame and a writing fellow at Heterodox Academy. Oliver's popular writing covers what we might call metapolitics, the norms of our political discourse, the comings and goings of political fads, demystifying what we're really doing when we're having debates. This work can be found in the pages of National Review, Quillette, and of course, City Journal. And Oliver is working on a book project that will be titled Political Beliefs, A Philosophical Introduction. So Oliver, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with a tricky subject these days, expertise. There was a book published a few years ago by a writer named Tom Nichols, now writes for The Atlantic, called The Death of Expertise. Nichols lamented that we are living in dangerous times, as he wrote, People have never had so access to so much knowledge and yet been so resistant to learning anything. But as you recently observed, learning from experts is actually an interesting problem. How should we evaluate claims made by experts when we might not possess the domain-specific information that they do? How can a layman adjudicate a dispute between two subject matter experts in a complicated field? And indeed, the role of expertise in society seems to be an urgent problem today. You know, if you open an article in the New York Times, the Washington Post, you're likely to see a story treating the opinions of experts with dubious credentials as authoritative. So if reliance on expertise means deferring to expert knowledge, what should small d Democrats make of this notion that we should just sit back and trust the people with expert knowledge to run society? A small d Democrat should make their political participation as informed as it should be, as as it could be, as it can be. Um, and, uh, that can definitely involve listening to experts, but I think that, uh, people have a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty about experts, um, lay people have, and even, even some, um, you know, some people who are kind of educated in elite institutions have, and they, uh, are often justified in this. So, one cause of this, as you mentioned, um, is simply the the difficulty in identifying experts. Um, so as a lay person, I'm confronted with all these people on talk shows, on uh, political shows. They're all saying, we need to do this, we need to do that. Here's the situation with COVID. Here's the situation with the economy. Here's the situation in the Ukraine, right? And I need to evaluate all those claims. But I don't have any knowledge that will help me settle those disagreements. So in order to evaluate the claims, I have to kind of evaluate the people. Now, this is something that uh, in philosophy, we're often very hesitant to say people should do. We call it ad hominem. We're going towards the people rather than towards the argument. But it's not ad hominem because it's simply what we do every day when we decide who to trust, right? If you... You're in a new city, you walk down the street, um, you ask somebody where a certain uh, landmark is and they point you in a certain direction. You have to decide whether to trust them or whether they're kind of making fun of you, having having you uh, having you on or whatever the phrase is. Um, so that's one source. Um, but another source of distrust of experts, which I think is as at least as politically salient, is simply uh, that the experts don't often, well, maybe often is the wrong word, 
they don't always seem to get it right. So my kind of political awareness has been peppered by a series of expert failures. Um, I think uh, the Iraq war was a failure of at least the apparent experts, the people who presented themselves as experts. Um, the uh, the economic crash of 2007, 2008, the housing crash, the, the credit default swap uh, implosion um, was a failure of experts. Um, in a way, the Trump election was a failure of experts. M- many political experts said he had no chance. Um, and many, many aspects of uh, COVID were, were a failure of experts as well. Um, the COVID response, the sort of bungling of whether masks worked, the bungling of whether to close down transportation, um, and even questions about uh, the source of the virus itself um, seem to have been mishandled by experts. Now, one response I sometimes get when discussing this issue is something like, those aren't the real experts, or you know, the, the, the experts were just kind of saying certain things in order to try to get the public to do the right things, and they had to kind of tell these noble lies um, and I just think that that, uh, from the perspective of a member of the public, that doesn't really matter that much, right? The, uh, if you say, well, those weren't the real experts, the real experts were kind of people you would never have heard of, uh, in, in some cloistered, uh, you know, Ivy laden ivory tower somewhere, uh, that doesn't really help the, the lay person, right? They're presented with a certain, uh, a series of apparent experts, um, sort of socially credentialed experts, experts who are, as you said, quoted in uh, papers like uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, put on talk shows, things like that. Um, and those are the people that the layperson has to evaluate. The layperson isn't going to have time to look at the faculty list of every university in the United States or, or read, you know, <laughs> even read magazines like the ones I write for, you know, Um and so the layperson is in a lot of trouble, even if there are experts out there somewhere, the layperson doesn't know how to find them. So um, you offer some recommendations in the article um, for, you know, the layperson to evaluate expertise. And there's a sort of interesting distinction here that I gather is one made in philosophy all the time between knowledge how and knowledge that. Uh, you, you begin the article by talking about a New Yorker cartoon um, you know, seeming to mock the notion that uh, the regular person knows better than the expert in how to run society. There's a there's a man in a plane. He's getting up and he's facing the cockpit, or he's he's facing the sort of cabin, and he's saying, you know, these smug pilots are out of touch with us regular passengers. Who thinks that I should be the, the one to get up and fly the plane? You know, but as you point out, there's really two types of knowledge. Um, you know. The, the kind that a pilot has, knowledge how, how do you fly a plane, and then knowledge that. This is a, a, a trickier kind, um, you know, I know that something is true, I know that something is the case. And, and, and you sort of point out that this distinction between knowledge how and knowledge that helps render this idea that, you know, society is like the plane um, kind of moot, like the analogy doesn't really hold up. So why don't you explain this distinction and, and, and how it can be useful? Yeah, so so the distinction between knowledge how and knowledge that is sort of ex- exactly what you said. It's a pretty straightforward distinction. Um, we can become more expert in sort of accomplishing, uh, you know, or taking part in or engaging in certain kind of activities. Um, we learn how to tie our shoes. 
Uh, we learn how to cook certain dishes, things like that. Um, we learn how to ride bicycles or drive cars or play musical instruments or play video games. And so that's what we mean by knowledge how. Just a, you know, just very, very rough characterization. And knowledge that is a sort of learning facts about the world, learning information about the world. Um, now, I don't, I don't mean to rest too much on this distinction. Um, the one question would be, okay, somebody has a lot of knowledge that, um, knowledge that in terms of, uh, economics or parts of society, right? And then they come up with some idea about how to run society. Um, and you need to have uh, some sense of how they're able to make that connection. How do you get from all of the things they've learned um, to them being able to kind of organize society in the right way? In, in the right way. Um, but an, I think in in the particular example of flying a plane, um, the I think something that's good about knowledge how is that often it can just simply be demonstrated. Um, so you can watch somebody driving a car, you can watch somebody flying an airplane, right? Um, and you can sort of see it's obvious that they have that knowledge um, because you know what it would look like for them to have it and you know what it would look like for them to not have it, right? The plane would crash or the plane would land. Um, those are clear differences. So, it makes the issue of identifying the expert uh, sort of moot. Whereas in the knowledge that case, right, you can claim to have a lot of knowledge, right? You can say, I know this about economics, I know this about society, I know this about uh, international relations and so on. But me not being the person who has the knowledge itself, I also seem to lack a way of identifying it. Now, this isn't true for all knowledge that, right? So, um, you know, you could say, well, I have the knowledge that it's going to rain tomorrow. And I say, okay, well, I just need to wait until it's tomorrow. And then I can kind of test you on it, right? Um, and of course, knowledge that and knowledge how are connected. Um, the knowledge that uh, certain diseases have certain symptoms is connected to the knowledge of how to diagnose as a doctor. Um, but the, the main issue is how do we, how do we test somebody for their knowledge? How do we test somebody for their expertise? Um, how do they demonstrate it? Um, and so with knowledge, how there seem to be easy ways, they simply do the thing that they're claiming to be able to do. And, uh, with knowledge that it can be much more complicated. Right. So, you know, one thing I, I think of, I think about when we start having these debates about expertise um, is common sense. You know, this is a, a very powerful uh, rhetorical idea in politics. You know, there are there's no shortage of populist traditions and uh, politicians who say, you know, the elites have lost touch with the common sense of society. Uh, you know, this was a, a very important strain in Reaganism. Neoconservative intellectuals would point out, especially on something like crime, that the academic criminologists, sociologists, what have you, had gotten themselves arguing, you know, that, for example, in fact, incarcerating uh, people will not reduce the crime rate, 
which you know these these figures argued was out of touch with the common sense of society. Um, you know this can feel at times maybe like an underbaked idea. It can it can feel demagogic, and uh, people who extol the the role of experts often you know say as much. You know, the the masses have been led astray by some uh, irresponsible demagogue. Common sense, you know, is really um, not something that we should let drive the bus. But in philosophy, there is really a role for at least intuitions in making arguments, or at least there's a debate over the role that intuitions should play um, when we're having an exchange. So, you know, what do you make of this idea that you know, the this sort of intuitive understanding of certain issues, um, you know, that that not that not that there really is a a common sense shared by the vast majority of Americans, but you know, what do you make of the idea that like it's always important to sort of take a step back um, and just you know appeal to you know what you might feel in your gut? Yeah, so um, it doesn't seem that philosophy can work any other way than than by this, right? Um, you ha- kind of have to start somewhere um, in your philosophizing. It has to be, um, and you know, it might as you know, it seems for it to be better to be something that is very strongly held. Um, a stronger foundation. Um, it might be uh, you start from the proposition that there there is an external world or there is such a thing as right and wrong or that, I don't know, that words mean things or that something exists. You know, you have to start from, from one of these kind of foundational ideas and then see what you can work out expanding on that. Um, now, it is true that in philosophy, just like in many other places, the sort of growing politicization of philosophy, which I've, I've written about a little bit and other people have written about with regards to the academy as a, as a whole, has led some philosophers to, to say, look, we shouldn't be taking these intuitions for granted. We should be debunking these intuitions. We should be thinking about the sources of these intuitions. We should be doing kind of like genealogies of these intuitions. And we should be thinking about... Um, you know, the idea that maybe we shouldn't be respecting them that much. Maybe we should be trying to replace them with kind of more more political intuitions, more progressive intuitions. Um, obviously, that's not, you can probably tell from the way I'm talking about it, or you know me, so you know that I, that's not the sort of project I'm usually behind. Um, but it's sort of similar to uh, what you see in politics. You know, recently, I'm never going to, this is such a perfect example, I'm never going to give it up. Um, there, There's a sort of, Democratic media and policy guy on Twitter. He has me blocked, but I managed to click through and see this tweet anyway. He said something about um, the only reason anybody thinks inflation is going on is because the media told them it was. Um, he would ne- nobody would ever have noticed um, unless you know without there being so much reporting on it. You know. Um, and so that is an attitude that I see as very, very opposed to my own, this idea that sort of media narratives and propaganda and sort of warping, uh, reality through these things, that that's where people really get their ideas, that they're sort of just listening, you know, they're listening for these messages from on high. And if you believe that, then you're going to think there should be a very, very pronounced role for experts because you're going to think there need to be these people who take control of the public narrative 
and tell people what the right things to think are. If you think people are never going to think for themselves anyway, never going to get real empirical feedback from the world around them anyway, never going to notice on their own that something like inflation is going on anyway, then you, sure, you're going to think, we, the good people, need to control the narrative. We need to control sort of uh, the news, you know, opinion pieces maybe even, and we need to deplatform the people who are lying or being evil, things like that. But if you're like me, you sort of think, well, people are going to, you know, maybe people are self-interested, but they're going to be actively sort of developing their sense of their own interest. They're going to be noticing when things cost more. They're going to be noticing what's going on in their communities, right? They're going to be worried about crime when crimes are happening. And for the most part, when crimes aren't happening, they're going to be worried about other things. Now, this is complicated. You know, America is a large country and we're in the Internet era, right? So maybe, you know, something that happened with a critical race theory stuff was it did seem at some points that a lot of people who were concerned about it were concerned about it happening elsewhere, not in their own, right, not in their own uh, school district necessarily. So in that case, you might think, okay, somebody is concerned about something that's happening in a different part of the country or a different part of the world. They must have heard it somewhere, and maybe maybe there's some effects of, of how that media is presented. But I think that the things that people really, really feel the most strongly, that's going to be things coming from their own community, things that they've felt themselves. Um, and uh, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think media manipulation generally plays an enormous role in people's reception of those things. I think people are, are, are genuinely getting information from the world around them. Maybe they don't know the solutions, but they're, they're looking for politicians who can offer solutions. All right, let's switch gears a bit. So you wrote an article uh, recently for City Journal on the website making the case that the U.S. has passed what you called peak woke, that woke is all things considered on the downswing. This might be welcome or unwelcome news to the listener, but why don't you sketch out the argument a bit? Yeah, so um, even in the article, uh, you know, the argument was kind of just sketched. It's an idea that I've been thinking about for a while. I ran it by some people a few months ago, and they were, you know, they thought I was being very, very optimistic, but maybe I'm just an optimistic person. So the idea is basically that, you know, this phenomenon of the great awakening or wokeness that we started to see maybe a decade ago, um, sort of coming off of earlier trends of political correctness, identity politics, social justice, those sorts of things. Um, you know, all the online social justice warriors, keyboard warriors, the cancel culture, the call out culture, people getting fired for making jokes on Twitter, you know, people being kept out of the, the academy for having conservative views, things like that. My idea was basically, I think we're seeing this being effectively pushed back. We're seeing some people being convinced that it's wrong, that it's bad, that it's bad even for, for them. And there's a bunch of causes of this. One is just kind of people realize it's not sort of effective on the large scale of American politics, right? Um, it's not effective in sort of, you know, the, the wokest candidates in the Democratic primary in, in 2020 didn't do, didn't do that well. Um, Biden was sort of the, the oldest and stodgiest candidate and uh, 
his his vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris, was arguably one of the Walker candidates, but was also a you know a former prosecutor and also has you know sort of not necessarily uh, distinguished herself too much as vice president. And uh, the the anti CRT push uh, from Chris Rufo has been very successful. And uh, the Virginia governor's race, I don't remember the details there, but CRT stuff was a big issue. Uh, most people seem to agree that there's been a little bit of an overreach on transgender issues, especially on gender in sports. Um, things like uh, gender in prisons. Uh, there's a story about uh, a transgender woman who impregnated two other women. Uh, people seem to agree that there's something odd going on there, something strange going on there. Um, and so there's basically, um, and of course, woke stuff during COVID was, a lot of it was very ridiculous. Um, in the early days of COVID, there was all this, you know, it's racist to think that COVID is going to be horrible. It's anti-Chinese or something. And that was just completely missed the mark, completely, completely unserious. Um, and uh, so sort of across multiple um indicators you know it it seems to be at least no longer ascendant and no longer to hold the kind of power uh that it once did over you know many people's minds is that the idea yeah exactly yeah so people have realized it's bad political strategy and i think people have also been people have also been convinced you know me hoping that people are rational thinking that people try to come up with the right beliefs and try to be serious about things. Um, I think people have also been convinced to agree to a degree that a lot of the woke ideas are not great. Um, and uh, also, you know, another piece of evidence that I cite is just uh, the rise of Substack, the fact that a lot of successful journalists have gone there, mostly anti-woke. Substack is a largely anti-woke platform in a lot of ways as sort of beating out traditional journalism, traditional op-ed pages. Um, and uh, so, yeah, those are a few sources of evidence. In terms of, in terms of people's beliefs, you know, a lot of it for me is just anecdotal. Uh, when I talk to the sort of people who used to kind of lecture me or call me names maybe six or seven years ago, racist or sexist or whatever, they don't really do that anymore. They've sort of taken on the anti-woke critique to a degree. And the other piece of evidence I cite, which I think is really important, this article from Ryan Grimm in The Intercept about, uh, basically about, you know, woke stuff taking over progressive organizations um, in a way that even progressives don't like, right? So it's not that, I disagree, you know, a lot of people on the right think wokeness simply is progressive or democratic politics, but I don't think that's right. Politics has to be, you know, real concrete politics is always kind of pointed towards achieving some external goal, getting some legislation passed or something like that. And um, the woke stuff in political organizations is all very internal. It's all about, you know, is there enough mental health support or did you give me a day off after this crisis or that? Um, and uh, so I think a lot of progressives are seeing their own organizations being sort of imploded from this stuff. A lot of DC, uh, you know, area progressive think tanks and nonprofits are having to deal with this stuff. Um, when I talk to my friends there, they say, oh yeah, the, the article has been passed around. We basically all agree with it. I'm talking about 
you know, people in their thirties, you know, millennials, um, and older than that. And, uh, so they're basically all seeing how, even if they kind of agree at the policy level or, you know, this or that woke issue, you know, maybe, uh, black lives matter or maybe transgender issues or whatever, what have you, they sort of see at the kind of institutional level, there's this, there's this problem that it causes where they can't really do their work. They're hiring people who don't really seem to be that invested in accomplishing anything. Um, and they end up having basically the same view that maybe a conservative in the academy might have. Sure. So I want to ask about wokeness itself. You know, to understand where it might be going, it'd be useful to understand where it came from. But nobody seems to quite agree. There are folks on the left who tend to deny that wokeness exists. You know, wokeness qua wokeness. Is, you know, Jamel Bowie has sort of um, intimated that he thinks it's essentially a slur. Uh, that it doesn't denote a real phenomenon and that it's, you know, basically used, um, you know, as a pejorative against certain groups. And then, you know, among people who do believe that wokeness exists, there are lots of different uh, genealogies or accounts of where it came from. There are idealist accounts that focus on the influence of particular arguments over time. So you can think of Jordan Peterson uh, sort of citing the work of the Frankfurt School postmodern neo-Marxism and saying what we're seeing today is an extension of that. There are economic accounts that focus on, you know, the alleged incentives for corporate leaders who adopt the language of wokeness, the Ross Douthat woke capital argument, or the situation of, you know, younger members of the managerial class, the kind of woke labor argument that we've seen Josh Barrow and Malcolm Kiyun make. There have been sociological accounts that focus on the creation and perpetuation of new institutional norms, uh, sort of Charles Lehman and Gabe Rossman have made this case in City Journal, and our friend Aaron Sibarium talks about it on Twitter sometimes. And there have been legalist accounts that see all of this as an essentially elaborate exercise in liability avoidance after the civil rights laws. So Richard Hanania and Christopher Caldwell have made this point. Um, you know, I'm curious what you make of all of these various attempts, uh, you know, without asking you to pick one, I think it's interesting. Um, it sort of suggests, it is suggestive that, you know, wokeness is a fuzzy phenomenon that nobody can quite nail down. Um, so, so why do we spend so much time talking about a thing that we can't quite agree, uh, you know, where it comes from? Yeah. So, you know, I've explored, I think you gave a great rundown of the different accounts. And I honestly think, for me as a philosopher, I don't know if an article like this exists, but I would love to just see an article that's like, let's lay out all the different theories of wokeness, all the different, you know, accounts of what it means and accounts of what its causes are. I would love to see something that just kind of lays them out uh, kind of all next to each other. Um, I would say that for me, I've explored different aspects of these. I've kind of tweeted about different aspects of these. And I, you know, I wrote an article for the bellows that was very much about the material side, right? Uh, the professional managerial class and uh, the sort of um, elite overproduction thesis and things like that. Um, that was a couple of years ago now. But basically each time I get committed to one of these theories, I see it as I eventually find it being lacking because it fails to capture something that one of the other theories captures. So my current view is a kind of perfect storm view 
where all these things developed and they sort of just all contributed to the phenomenon and maybe they were all even necessary for the phenomenon of wokeness. Um, I don't think you can tie wokeness to any particular cause. In particular, uh, you know, when I reviewed the book Cynical Theories, which gives one of the genealogical theories that says it all comes from the, you know, French Derrida, Foucault, right, these French postmodernist philosophers, um, I don't find that uh, very plausible. Uh, Wokeness in many ways departs from postmodernism. Um, even if it didn't, you would have to explain why postmodernism would so was so popular among these people. Um, it's not like it's intuitively convincing. It's usually very bad philosophy. So you'd have to explain why people were actually convinced by it. Right. Um, which the book really does not do. It basically just says like a lot of intellectual history, this is why I'm pretty skeptical about a lot of intellectual history that I read. It basically says, look at this idea. I've found something that's a little bit like this idea in another place. So therefore there must be some connection, some causal connection, right? Sort of ideas have consequences idea that, you know, nominalism and William of Ockham have destroyed modern society. Yeah. And it's not exactly that I think ideas don't have consequences, but I think many, many other things have consequences too. Now, the reason that I abandoned the materialist, so that's why I don't like the genealogical side. The reason that I abandoned the materialist approach was basically I saw in a small internet crowd that I'm part of, um, a sort of video game crowd where I'm uh, anonymous there. Um, I just saw a cancellation that had no material stakes. Um, I saw somebody being kicked out of the group um, where there was no job on the line. There was no, right, there was no, nobody was trying to gain anything. Nobody was making money from it or anything. It was very, very pure social ostracism. Um, And I basically think that it was either opportunistic in a non-material way where people just really liked having a, a reason to ostracize somebody and a reason to bully someone. Or the more likely thing is that it was heartfelt. These people were genuine, true believers in wokeness, right? And they simply thought it was the right thing to do to kick this person out of the group for these ridiculous woke reasons. And I think any theory of wokeness needs to make room for true believers and needs to make room for cancellations that are purely social, that have nothing to do with people's jobs. Um... You know, you start to hear stories of things happening on undergraduate campuses where, you know, all among kind of like, you know, wealthy elite, you know, former private school students and things like that. Um, and it doesn't seem that in those cases there are there are any, uh, you know, class differences, any, you know, no professional consequences. It's all social. Of course, it can be about getting something, but it doesn't have to be something material. It can be the pleasure of kicking somebody out of a group. It can be higher standing for yourself because you seem to have the power to kick people out of the group. Um, and so I don't, uh, the the class theories, the PMC theories, I think they're an important part and I like the people who run them, but I, I don't think they're convincing. I don't think they're complete. Um, and the legalistic theories, you know, again, it doesn't make room for the true believers, right? It doesn't make room for the people who really, really are convinced by wokeness. It explains the institutional arrangements, 
But, you know, take affirmative action. The law says that you can engage in affirmative action, but every institution does engage in affirmative action. You need to explain, you know, the litigation avoidance theorists are a lot, you know, in a very similar position to the sort of America is a racist country theorists who are progressive, where you need to explain if America is so racist, why do all of our elite uh, institutions engage in affirmative action? And wokeness, you know, one of my ideas about how to explain wokeness is a lot of wokeness is simply taking affirmative action and saying, you need to practice this as an individual. You need to have this in your hearts, right? In my piece for Quillette on affirmative action, I basically suggested that this is what Robin D'Angelo does. You need to be, in, in all of your interactions, you need to be practicing affirmative action. And this is, studies have shown that white progressive liberals uh, like use shorter words when talking to people of color and stuff like that. You know, um, it's clear that there's something that's sort of, sort of, you know, incredibly condescending and patronizing about wokeness in, in a way that you might think is also true of affirmative action. Um, so basically, I, I think all these theories capture something, but none of them capture everything, um, if that makes sense. Right. So um, finally, you know, I want to talk a bit about your book project. We've been talking today about the nature of expertise in politics and where particular views might come from. Um, but a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about writing about and working on politics, uh, acquiring kind of object level expertise on a given public policy issue or a matter of political strategy. You know, I, I know how this tax credit works. I know how to pass a bill. Um, but there really aren't, you know, that many uh, meta level experts on, you know, the sources of these beliefs. You know, I, I spend a lot of time in my day job editing opinion pieces. And I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about whether the arguments, you know, make sense, are rigorous, are well made. But I don't spend as much time thinking about, you know, why they might be appealing to me or to the author or to the readers. Um, so, I guess first, what are you trying to accomplish with this book? Um, you know, is the idea to sort of bring to bear some of your philosophical shops to the the capital D discourse, which can you know so often be so crazy? Yeah. So um, I don't even know. I don't know how much this book will enter the discourse. It, originally, I conceived it as a textbook. So the idea is basically to to figure out how to use politics as sort of, you know, to some degree as just a, uh, an example to teach, uh, undergrads about, you know, making good philosophical arguments and things like that. And as a vehicle for thinking about, um, epistemology, which is this subdiscipline of philosophy that I work in where the topic is just how, how should we form our beliefs? What reasons should we have for our beliefs and things like that, or which sorts of reasons are the good ones? Um, in terms of what I'm hoping to accomplish with it, um, yeah, that's a good question. I think I, I'm not yet at the point where I can say, here's a kind of large theory of how you ought to form your political beliefs. It's going to be much more kind of topical and, uh, what's the right word? Um, scattershot than that, right? So it's going to be, first of all, how should we deal with the fact that there are a lot of people who disagree with us, right? On most topics, 
if you said, you know, well, 50% of people think this, 50% of people think that, you might feel some pressure to say, well, it's 50-50, so it's really hard to decide, right? On politics, we don't seem to feel this pressure. If, if anything, sometimes when people disagree with us, we become more convinced of our views uh, somehow. So there's a whole literature on the theory of disagreement and philosophy that has been in some cases related to politics, but I'm going to try to do it a bit more rigorously. Um, and then, you know, related to disagreement, disagreement is what happens when, you know, it's what the word we use in philosophy for when you have a different belief than somebody with similar knowledge and to, to you and reasoning ability to you. Then there's this stuff about expertise that we've already talked about. How do we identify the people with better knowledge and expertise? And there's sort of a whole rundown that I do there. And expertise is the topic that a lot of philosophers have taken for granted. And I try to do it more justice in this book, or I will try to do it more justice. And then there's, you know, there's a bunch of little topics like philosophers have argued about whether it's possible to rationally believe a conspiracy theory. Maybe every conspiracy theory is irrational. Um, that seems like a really strong view. So the book will just kind of strong in the sense of, uh, you know, it, it's a reach, right? It's very universal. It doesn't make room for exceptions. So I'll run down arguments people have made for that. Um, then there's all this discussion of political polarization. Polarization is maybe the most uh, important phenomenon of political belief in the U.S. The fact that you find these different groups, you know, basically two big groups of belief clusters and they seem to be moving apart from each other. So there's all this debate about what am I rationally required to do when I realize I'm part of a belief cluster. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a little bit scattershot. It's going to engage with a lot of previously existing philosophical literature. Um, and um, in the end, I don't know if it's going to offer much positive guidance, right? I think to a degree, I, the more that I've thought about this stuff, and this is something that always happens with epistemology, right? The more that you think about epistemology, the more you start to wonder whether we know anything at all or should believe anything at all, just like Descartes, right? So I don't have a positive view yet. I started to wonder, is there really anything that we ought to believe about politics? Maybe there's so much disagreement and so much unclarity out there and people have such bad track records in politics that we should just be political skeptics. We shouldn't necessarily have any political beliefs at all um and um yeah so that's just a view that a view that i'm considering uh not a view that many people seem to hold i want to close by you know drilling down on on one of these questions you know that of rationality and political belief um, some scholars seem to believe that polarization and even you know our political views themselves tend to be a matter more of attitudes than of beliefs. Uh, you know, on this view, what seems like a country that can't agree on anything, whether it's basic facts or value judgments, is actually a country where people possess pretty flexible ideological views, um, and the disdain for the partisan outgroup is mostly a tribal or expressive thing. This position is associated with uh, thinkers such as J Jason Brennan and Larry Bartels, um, and it tends to be skeptical that Americans, or at least many Americans, hold stable and coherent policy preferences. You know, but on the other hand, we do have some real evidence from polling or experience that Americans tend to be, for example, dispositionally conservative, but operationally liberal, or that they hold 
real positions on questions of, say, social security reform. You know, so I'm not going to ask you to give a grand unified theory of where political beliefs come from, but as somebody who earlier on in the podcast was kind of defending the idea that um, our political beliefs are at least in part rationally grounded, what do you make of this question? Yeah, so I think this is a, it's one of the, one of the theories that you have to engage with if you're writing this kind of book or teaching this kind of course. Um, and yeah, at the extreme, you can, you can present this theory as just being, um, you know, people don't even really have political beliefs at all. They just have sort of political affiliations. Um, one question, one question you might have in response to a theory of this is like, okay, so people don't have their political beliefs. So where do their political affiliations come from? How do people form these political affiliations? Because you have, you can have very, very similar people in a lot of ways who have very, very different political affiliations. This is one reason why, you know, Karl Marx in his class-based theory doesn't really give a satisfying theory of political belief because it just is the case that within a class, there's a ton of disagreement about what is right and wrong to do in politics. So basically you can't simply say, okay, the proletariat have these beliefs, the bourgeois have these beliefs, right? The aristocracy have these beliefs because within those classes, there's plenty of disagreement. So if you really want an explanation of how people come up with their political beliefs, you need a lot more information than that. You need to go a lot more fine grained than that. So similarly, here, you have to figure out, right, like, what is it that, that drives these affiliations? Where do these affiliations come from, if not some initial set of political beliefs? Um, one thing that you might have, right, so in the case where, okay, a lot of Republicans became more skeptical of free trade after Donald Trump, uh, you know, was opposed to it, you might say, okay, people have their core political beliefs, and that kind of indicates to them who, who is trustworthy, who the experts are in some sense. And then they're willing to change kind of the periphery of their political beliefs. Um, but maybe maybe those core pol political beliefs wouldn't change. Um, and it's only the, only the other political beliefs on which they defer. So I don't know exactly the right way to respond to this position. I think it's one of the, one of the positions that you simply have to engage with um, based on a lot of literature about what people believe and uh, how they express it. Um, and, you know, another thing that goes into as support for this is that um, if you ask people their, their political beliefs, um, they can express them very strongly. And there's this polarization between right and left. And then you ask people to bet on them. And the more you ask them to bet, the closer the beliefs get together, right? So that indicates that there's less disagreement than we would think. Um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it's a difficult question, but there's, there's stuff that remains, um, to the people who think that political, that political beliefs are just this ephemera, um, you know, this sort of side effect of affiliation or whatever, you have to explain what the main effect is, right? You have to explain where that comes from as well. Um, so that's one challenge I would make to that kind of theorist. But, you know, in general, it's a really, it's one of the most difficult challenges for someone like me. Thank you very much, Oliver. Um, 
fascinating stuff as always. Re- listeners, don't forget to check out Oliver's work on the City Journal website, uh, www.city-journal.org. We will link to his author page in the description, and we'll also link to some of the other writings for other outlets that he had mentioned today. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And Oliver is on Twitter at Oliver Traldi. As always, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please give us a rating reflecting that. And Oliver, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.